Welcome to the RSP Quick Game. Mark Schofield, Matt Waldman, Magic the Gathering. I'm not sure. It depends on some of the Browns fans who uh, <laughs> who, who who frequent this joint. Um, but you know, great week of football. A lot of injuries, weird things that happen, bad things that happen. We'll probably cover a lot of it. So let's just start off with week six. We're a year removed um, with what began as surprising play from San Los Angeles Chargers quarterback Justin Herbert. And I don't think there's a better person to ask about Herbert than Mark because, Mark, you had the most positive outlook on him that I was aware of. And while I think most of the media draft community saw him as a future starter, they didn't see him as the top guy. And, you know, what did most of us, I know I'm one of them. I mean, I, hell, I had, I had Jacob Eason above him. <laughs> Just slightly. So, yeah, I'd say I missed on Jacob Eason, even though I liked Justin Herbert. I wasn't, I, I didn't think Justin Herbert was going to be this good, not remotely. So on that level, absolutely a miss. So what did most of us who liked Justin Herbert as a potential starter, but completely missed on him being a star? What, what do you think we missed? I, I spent a good part of yesterday afternoon going back, reading some of my pre-draft takes on Herbert and calling myself an absolute coward. Because I read one of the pieces I did at the RSP where I made a, a case for him for QB1, but I didn't go all the way. I ended up Burrow to uh, Herbert. But my final sort of you know view on Herbert was this. Put him in a vertical-based offense that allows some play-action stuff, some West Coast concepts. Allow him to attack with leverage in the downfield passing game, and you're going to have a star. Like that, that's what I said over at USA today. And I, I think that was largely it. I, I think the thing with Herbert, and it's such a critical reminder as we start thinking about Matt Corral and Malik Willis, scout the traits, not the system, scout the traits, not the scheme, scout the traits, not the offense, because Oregon's offense did him no favors. I, I went back and watched a video I did for the RSP where I broke down a, a game with a drive against Arizona, where it was like screen tunnel screen, smoke screen, all this bad stuff. And then he just rips a ridiculous throw in a vertical route for the touchdown. And it's like, this is the kid who he can beat. And I know there were some people that wondered, look, can he go through progressions? I did some stuff on him against Stanford where you see him working through reads, attacking the middle of the field with his eyes. But you had to look to find that stuff. And sometimes when we get all these players we're trying to watch, Minimal access to games. The Pac-12 is notorious for like hiding their games, hiding their footage. I remember the days of draft breakdown where they would post a cut up of a Pac-12 player, and within two hours, if you hadn't copied it and saved it to your hard drive, it was gone. Uh, like they were notorious for that. It's often hard to look for those moments. So maybe you don't get to see them. Maybe you watch a game where he throws twenty-five tunnel screens, and you're just like, I don't know what to do with this. I get it. But scout the traits as best as you can, not not the system, not the offense. Because I remember my favorite throw of his was from his junior year. He threw a back shoulder ball. And I remember I did a video on this on the RSP, and I know you, you know what I'm talking about, against Cal. Right hash mark to left sideline, 45 yards down the field, because they ran a switch concept. 
and he saw that the defender, they were switching it. He was playing it from outside, from middle out. He wasn't going to get there in time, so he put it on the guy's back shoulder from like, I mean, let's tap into Pythagoras for a second. It was like a 60-yard throw that he put on the guy's back shoulder on a line. And that's a moment where I'm like, okay, maybe the offense wasn't great, you know, and you're going to have to get the development right. You're going to have to get the landing spot right. But there's something here, and it's why I spent all spring and summer banning the table for Shane Steichen, who's now in Philadelphia, and Pep Hamilton. These guys should get gigs because you look at the job they did as offensive coordinator and quarterback coach for, for Justin Herbert last year. I give them a ton of credit. I give Herbert a ton of credit. I think Herbert also very introspective person, very smart person. I'll never forget when a senior bowl media day, when he was talking about, you know, he's, he got so many questions, Matt, about leadership. And that touched off a great discussion about leadership, which I do want to, and I know I'm going long. I don't care, which we'll get into about leadership in a second, but, I'll never forget when he was at Senior Bowl Media Days talking about how he's a shy guy. He's an introvert, but he's reading books about leadership. It, it just showed me, like, this is a guy who's self-aware. This is a guy that knows that, look, I'm an imperfect person. I'm an imperfect quarterback. Like There are things I can get better at, and I'm going to try to get better at those. With respect to the leadership stuff, I've often maintained that quarterback is a leadership position, but it doesn't have to be the rah-rah, yell, fiery, Tom Brady throwing Microsoft tablets. As long as you can walk into that huddle and the 10 sets of eyes, I've used this before, the 10 sets of eyes all look back at you because they believe in you. It doesn't matter if you're a screamer, if you're a silent type, that's the leadership you need at the position. Herbert delivers that. Forget the introvert stuff. Forget the shy, quiet stuff. He leads with his play on the field. The guys are following him. It's been a joy to watch him. Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the greatest quarterback who ever played was probably an introvert and he, he walked into the huddle in San Francisco and pretty much every, he looked at the eyes of everyone and they they pretty much said, what cliff with spikes down, you know, 500 feet below, are we going to jump off and enthusiastically do that with when he came or in Kansas City at the later yeah. end of his career? So, I mean, when I think with Herbert, one of the things that you mentioned and again, scouting the traits is certainly part of that and getting enough tape to see things because there are points in his tape I remember watching where I'd see decisions he'd make downfield that were really flawed, you know, but, and they weren't the product of the offense. But the problem is, is that, as you alluded to, you have to see enough exposures of things. Yeah. And if you don't see enough exposures, then what can happen is, if you, if it's one to one or maybe only two to one good, or even just three to one good, you can still feel like that the weight of the, uh, you know, the the weight of the negative overtakes yeah. the positive with Herbert, and I think that was part of it for me was looking at that, but at the same time. I also think that the fit is a very important thing. And then also yeah. what he showed, I mean, I got to say the things that I didn't see on tape and probably were there, but I, I didn't see were, I mean, what he did downfield as a decision maker, as well as how he moved in the pocket. Like I saw elements of what he could do in the pocket, but he seems, I thought he was better in the pocket in the NFL than he, he was. was. He at has Oregon. been. 
he has been. I, I think that's something that even I didn't see coming. Like, as relatively optimistic as I was about Herbert, I did not see. Look, you look at the numbers. There's a case to be made that last year he was the best quarterback in the NFL under pressure, bar none. Better than Brady. Better than Rodgers. Like, there's, there's that case to be made. The game where he was pressured the most, his breakout game against Tampa Bay, where he threw four touchdowns against a team that went on to win the Super Bowl. I didn't see that coming at yeah. all. And that was a huge... That was a that's a huge area, at least for me when I evaluate. I mean, like yeah. we're talking, you know, Mark wrote a did a great thing, great analysis of three plays of, of Lamar Jackson on Twitter that I'd recommend you go check out. And I kind of retweeted that and said the one common element running through Jackson's game from Louisville through now has been his efficient pocket movement and ability to climb. He, yeah, he did that better other than flushing and retreating. And that was not Justin Herbert. At Oregon, no. Justin Herbert. Now he'd moved to his left, he'd moved to his right, but climbing the pocket, he was not that great at. And it's it's such an unnatural thing for quarterbacks, for humans. I mean, I've got Montana's art and magic of quarterback, and he talks about it at length in that book. How you have to climb towards danger. It is everything in your mind tells you do not go closer to the bad people who are trying to put you in the hospital. But that's what you have to do. Like that's you have to be able to climb the pocket, that like subtle, nuanced pocket movement. Herbert did not have that. Jackson did. I mean, Jackson right. certainly did, and he showed it in the Monday night game. Herbert did not have that at all. He has it now. I don't know where he learned it, but he did a good job of it. Yeah, and that's that's the interesting part about evaluation sometimes is yeah, is because these are all three combinations: the scheme fit, you know, the improvement between senior year or junior year yep. and and the NFL and also how you weight exposures, you know? Yeah. And and I would add, you know, that's funny that you mentioned Tom um Joe Montana and climbing in the pocket and how unnatural it is. Tom, one Tom Brady did that does that very well and did that very well. And the thing that I've always equated it to because you said, you know, stepping towards danger is is an unnatural task. And it reminds me, it's a similar quote to when people talk about boxing. Yeah. And Tom Brady was a boxer in college. You know, he was on the Michigan Boxing Club. And I would, you know, not not sure I'd want to recommend boxing for quarterbacks, but it's certainly, there's some elements to that. Yeah. That, I mean, that could be quite valuable. You and I have, have, when we've done these shows together, dated back to, I remember we talked about boxing with Jared Goff. You know, when we did an RSV film, where we talked about the footwork and and creating space, and there there's a lot to be gained for quarterbacks to at least study boxing uh, from a footwork perspective, from a creation of space perspective. You know, with the golf, I likened it to created space with your feet to get off a better punch. Yeah. You know, and you need to do some things like that as a quarterback. Absolutely. So, speaking of a guy who threw a punch. Um, this week, <laughs> you gave me a great transition. Yeah, Kadarius Tony. He had an extended debut that was fantastic for the most part. Then he got absolutely ejected. fantastic. But but what'd you think of him? I mean, I was impressed with everything until he threw the punch. I mean, you see the movement skills. You see the reasons why people like me. I, I was relatively high on Tony. Um, were excited about him. The, the movement skills, the ability to incorporate him into an offensive game plan where it's not just gadget stuff. 
like for everything that people said about, oh, you know, manufactured touches, jets, bubbles, some stuff out of the backfield. He was a pretty good route runner on the limited route tree he was asked to run, right? Some crossing stuff where he knew how to like accelerate versus man, sit down versus zone, good feel for stuff like that. I, I liked him from a – now we – sort of drift towards the punch moment. I liked him from a competitive toughness standpoint. He had a block, I think, against Kentucky on a crack where he just obliterated a dude. And, you know, you like that. You like to see that. And so I was very excited to see his game against Dallas. I was, I've was i been very excited, even though they lost over the past couple of weeks. I think Jason Garrett has done a good job, both for Daniel Jones. And this past week with some of the stuff they did with Tony, getting him involved. Now, look, the Giants have other problems. Could Tony throws a punch. We know Joe Judge is old school. I'm not sure how that's sitting with him as we record this on a Tuesday, but everything up until that moment was fantastic. Yeah, and it's funny because when, you know, I didn't think this was going to be the case, but there is a kind of a invisible thread between these first two questions because I had Tony number five on my board of wide receivers, and so that was only below Rashad Bateman, um, Devonta Smith, Jalen Waddell, and, uh, you know, our, our man you know, out of LSU, who was number oh, one, yeah, Chase, yeah. Yeah. you know? So, you know, I had Chase, it was Chase, Chase Waddle, Smith, Bateman, and Tony. And that was fairly high um, for, I think, for most people from what I've, the commentary I got back when I put that up. And the things I liked about Tony were he has an in- incredible release footwork. He has a very nice library of releases for a young receiver. And you saw that on display with the route where he ran kind of the out where he had the kind of the stair step release inside against the, the tight man coverage against Dallas. And then he had the look in and then he and then he pulled the lever and broke back outside. It was a great release there because he understood it was a very efficient one, understood how to use his feet, but he has way more than that. The and his tra- ball tracking has always been fantastic. Go watch him at Florida return punts where he's fielding a punt Willie May style over his head, retreating back for a kick. When you can do that, that's a big sign. You're going to be able yeah. to make contested plays, fade routes, you name it. All the vertical routes going to be fine. So those two elements are there in addition to the great after-the-catch skills. The biggest issue I had with him and that I was concerned with him about was his footwork at the top of his stem. He often made breaks in an unbalanced fashion and he would slip and fall on these breaks. So when one of my RSP readers this week, when I'm profiling Tony on Twitter goes, well, why didn't, why wasn't he starting then? Well, if you go back to the training camp and mini camp, he was falling down on every route or not yeah. everybody's falling down a lot. And then he injured himself falling down. So he missed reps and missed time. And I think that the Giants at this point with the receiving core that they had and with Joe Judge being who he is probably was like, I don't think we can trust him enough yet to make him a starter. Right. You know, in year one, we want to make sure that he's got the game plan down, that he can execute consistently, that he's not making little mistakes. So, you know, now he's in because of injuries to half the this, most of the starting core and he yeah. shined and he looked fantastic. My only issue with Tony that I was afraid of and I didn't mention in the RSP, but I had in my notes because I just didn't want to I don't scout character. Uh, you yeah. know, we don't have 
I we mean, we don't have all the info. Yeah, we're we 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 don't have we don't have the resources, and I know there are people who go into that heavily and who will talk to people in the NFL. But I don't even trust the people in the NFL with the resources that they have because there's one right. team that basically, you know, there are some teams that if you don't go to church and you don't, you know, I mean, I'm exaggerating to an extent, but if you don't go to church and have a certain way of being, they don't want you, you know, and that may mean that the guy who, you know, smokes pot recreationally but doesn't have an issue with it. Um, like is off their board. Like people I know who are in high ends of finance and in corporate America and leaders in, in, in areas that you would never know they do that kind of stuff. Right. They're off the board, even though they might be great citizens in a lot of other ways. You know, so you, you know, when you look at somebody like Tony, the only thing I had concerned about is that he did have some interactions with police that, you know, at Florida where they were mostly minor things. Some of them were immature moments that could have escalated to, to something worse or far worse. But, you know, you can't pin that on him. It was just kind of stuff that I've seen a lot of people were in situations like that and matured. But you just wondered because when you get suspended, when you have some of these some of these issues, you, you wonder about the maturity factor. And, yeah, I mean, we've seen choir boys you know, when they get onto the field, get intense and throw a yeah. punch at somebody. I mean, it, it happens. Yeah, it happens. He'll learn from it. Yeah. And I think Joe Judge ain't going to worry about that. Yeah, probably yeah. not. Probably not. So I went back. You and I were on the exact same page, at least as far as Tony. I had him as wide receiver six only because I had Pitts as wide receiver five because I thought Pitts could play both. See, there so you we go. both had him as wide receiver five. So, yeah. yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think about Kenny Pickett? I've got something I've got coming up here. I was a little late to our – to our meeting here today because I because uh, I was uploading a tape of, of Pickett. But what do you think of him as a prospect thus far? He might be the riser. He really might. He really might be the riser. I, I wrote uh, two weeks ago that we might be seeing a Mac Jones-type rise here where somebody that was sort of under the radar, started the season well. You might be thinking, okay, he's played himself into day two. You see the games that got coming up, particularly a game against US, UNC, where if he beats UNC, he beats Clemson, he beats Sam Howell head-to-head, it might be, okay, he's playing himself into the middle of the first round by that point. I like him from an athletic standpoint. I think he moves well. I think he moves extremely well inside and outside of the pocket, throws well on the move, does a very good job – keeping his eyes downfield when he breaks and escapes to find plays downfield. I think he checks the boxes from an arm talent standpoint. Like I'm not worried about him from an arm profile. Obviously look, he's experienced. He, he took the COVID year. So he has an extra year to him. Tony Rossiope, we know his private quarterback coach. He's been doing a lot of work with Tony who Tony and Tony knows his stuff. So we might be seeing the rise and especially look Spencer Rattler might be losing his job as we speak. You know, Caleb Williams looks like, as a guy that's coming to you from the D.C. area, like there's a lot of excitement about Caleb Williams. Sam Howell has had an up and down year. Matt Corral had a great bounce back against Arkansas, but he had the opportunity for that statement game against Alabama. Didn't quite come together for him. You know, Malik Willis as supremely talented, supremely talented. And we just saw a quarterback who we're going to talk about with incredible traits go third overall. So, you know, there are guys that Carson Strong has looked good. There are others that are making some noise. 
Kenny Pickett seems to be the guy that's at this point has played the most consistent, even in the game they lost to Western Michigan. I think he threw five touchdowns. Like he's played the most consistent, decent football to date. And that's what's enabled this rise. Yeah. I mean, I think you covered the positives really well. And I think the, you know, the arm talent, the ability to move outside, throw on the move with placement and velocity, you know, the willingness to stand in and take a hit to throw the ball downfield is really strong. Um, you, you know, the things the, the the things that he'll improve, that he should improve upon that are projectable for quarterback improvement, you know, one of it is his footwork. His lower body mechanics with his release still needs work. I think he's a baseball-style thrower uh, to an extent, and his and he can shorten or he can quicken his lower body a little bit and be a little more efficient with his lower body so that the ball comes out faster. Cause he has a, he has a quick release with the upper body mechanics, but the lower body he kind of steps into the bucket. Sometimes you know. he has some of that take the, the longer step. And then the, 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 the back leg is trailing directly behind the front leg in a way that kind of you know, takes a while for those hips to open up. And I don't think he gets the most out of that, but that's, you know, again, I don't think it's a killer thing with this game, but it's something that, you know, depending on the offense he's in, depending on the type of quick game and things like that, there are going to be certain plays where you would like to see him be able to shorten that up. And yeah. so so that's one thing that I think will improve. The pre-snap diagnosis will have to improve, and that's something that with most quarterbacks it is. It's almost yeah. like I almost hate bringing it up because I feel like every quarterback yeah. most of the time needs to do that. But he... But, you know, there are things where there are some obvious things that you'd still like to see. Like when a defense is pressure, you know, sends basically, you know, four to five of its guys off the right side of the line and you see them there pre-snap crowding that side. I think as a quarterback, you should have a feel for that. Maybe the middle to the left side of the pocket is the area I should climb to. Yeah. Even if I haven't seen the pressure break containment yet. Um, so... And his first reaction, and what I worry about his first reaction is flush to the left, retreat and flush to the left, to the right, excuse me, yep. on just about every play. And so he's got, again, like we talked about with Herbert, learn to climb the pocket. If he can do those three things, we're probably looking at a very good starter in the NFL. Um, yep. Depending on how many of those things he can get and which ones he does get, I think will determine a lot about his career if we looked at it from a broad strokes perspective. Yep. Yeah. So let's talk a little about Gregory Rousseau, defensive end for Buffalo. He had quite a night against the Chiefs, um, you know, and they were talking about how he got, you know, basically that the the coaching staff was like, yeah, you know, without the pads on, he didn't really look all that great to us, you know, his first year. Looked like it might be an adjustment year for us. You know, pre-draft, he got downgraded a fair bit after like people were talking about his first year about how great he was going to be. And, you know, and then they kind of lean, the media scouting kind of relieved, kind of leans hard on relaying what the league probably thinks more or less, I bet, in some ways. And But when you look at Rousseau now, he has 14 tackles and three sacks in five games. I mean, those are strong figures for defensive ends in terms of the stat line. And the Bills said that, you know, once they put the pads on, they couldn't they couldn't imagine taking him off the field or out of a starting lineup. So I'm just wondering, you could either comment about Rousseau's game or just the phenomenon of players who are either bad at practice um, 
or one phase of preparation, but when they're on the field, they ball out. Either one or both. I don't care. I just want to hear. Yeah, Rousseau was an interesting evaluation because he was great in that 2019 season at Miami, um, but then opted out. You know, he opted out because of COVID and his mother was sick. So he wanted to make sure his mother wouldn't get sick. And so that made it a difficult evaluation. I don't think he, I don't recall him testing him very well, probably because he wasn't exactly in football shape. So there were some people that were down on him in that. When you watched him in 2019, you saw the ability of him to play almost anywhere up front. Like there were times when Miami kicked him over, just had him as a zero tech, had him on the center, you know, and then you move him around the offensive, the defensive line, the defensive different alignments and he was able to be successful from almost any alignment which led to that huge huge year in 2019 so he was a tough evaluation buffalo certainly feels like they got it right and then as far as the difference between what he does in practice versus when the lights come on you know that's something we've talked about we've talked about it with Dak. we've talked about it with some other quarterbacks where it's like you know practice is one thing you know but when the lights come on they have that ability to sort of kick it into that extra gear where it's like you know I'll be there on Wednesday and I'll learn what I need to learn. But when it's Saturday afternoon or, or Sunday night down in Kansas city, like that's when you'll really get what I can do. And some athletes are just that way. I mean, Alan Iverson, we're talking about practice. I mean, I, I played with guys that were like that way. We're like, you know, on, on, you know, Thursday afternoon during a walkthrough, they're kind of going through the motions, but you knew when the game kicked off Saturday, that guy was going to be open every time you looked for it. So, some athletes are just that way. Some athletes are just ready when the lights come on. Others, you know, approach every moment like it's game seven of the World Series. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, it's one of those things that if you're going to, you know, if a player gets drafted early and they have the draft capital, they can get away with that. I think yeah. they can get away with that much easier um, unless they wind up with an extremely old school coach who also has control issues on a bad level. You know, and then it could be one of those things where the coach basically um, ends up riding that player out of town and then yeah. the player ends up in a different location where it works out very well for them. I think that the the Oakland Raiders of the 70s and 80s were a haven for players who probably didn't practice well, but could ball out like Rob yeah. Gronkowski was a 1970s, 1980s Oakland Raider, if there right. ever was one. Yeah. You, you know, but. You know, so when you look at a guy Rousseau, that was probably part of it. Um, but one of the things that really impressed me about his game is his hands. The way he used his hands, the accuracy to be able to get his hands onto the wrist or leverage point of the hands of the opposing offensive lineman and manipulate that defender to keep the defenders and use both hands to be able to, you know, use the one arm to hold off the defender from getting into his body while using his other hand to, to get the wrist at the right point and lift the defender's arm off his chest while he's moving to his left yeah. and fold the defender's or the, the blocker's hand into his chest so that he could then disengage off that one arm movement and tackle a, a running back in the back, you know, basically before he got too far past the line of scrimmage. Um, that's a, you know, that's a fantastic skill. Yeah. And when you have that pinpoint accuracy with hand placement as a defensive lineman, it, there's a lot that you can do. 
you know so yeah yeah and and that's one of those things where you see like sort of the connection between the processing skills and the athleticism right to be able to pick up with your mind where to put your hands and then to be able to execute that very difficult like anybody that studies offensive line defensive line trench play they will tell you that hand placement is like i don't want to say half the battle and get offensive line twitter mad at me but it's a big portion of the battle same thing on the defensive side of the ball yeah and so when you can when you can use your arms independently while you're moving to a certain side of the field maintain your balance and have the timing to do all of that i mean that's yeah putting it all together yeah so trey lance speaking of players who probably didn't quite put it all together in their first start and um he had a rough first start, I would say. Um, you know, maybe statistically, we'll put yeah. it that way. Um, but what were your impressions of his performance and the 49ers' use of him? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you sent me a message about it. I hadn't watched him yet. Um, but what you said to me in that message was exactly right. It's It almost seemed like... They drafted, and this is what I sent back to you, they drafted him to replace Jimmy Garoppolo, but they, then they asked him to be Jimmy Garoppolo in his first NFL start. Like, there are a lot of timing and rhythm and ISO routes and things like that that, yeah, you know, if you're a veteran NFL quarterback that thrives more on, like, precision accuracy, like, that's the kind of stuff you call for him. That's not Trey Lance right now. I mean, Trey Lance is more of a athletic guy, play action, you know, get him on the move a little bit, move him around the pocket. You know, they used his legs somewhat. They could have done more of that. And so I thought it was an interesting sort of game plan and game script from Kyle Shanahan. And I think there will be a feel it out process as Shanahan starts to learn, okay, these are the things that he really likes to run, that he's very effective at. Maybe these are the things that we, we sort of put on the shelf or don't call as often. As far as Lance's performance within that environment, there are some things that I liked. I mean, I think, you know, he had some reads and throws in that game where, you know, you could see, for example, you know, he had a, a nice throw where he had to read hot. This was a play early in the third quarter and he just got it to his, his check down because he had a blitz coming. And that was a very good play. You know, the, the Sanu drop where they showed oh, pressure, yeah. they kind of drop and he rips a post route in cut on third and 11. I thought, I thought that was a great read and a great throw. I thought, even the time he was asked to do that ISO backside, I think to Ayuk out of a four by one on a third and three, you know, he put that ball exactly where it needed to be. At the same time, look, there were moments where he needed to be faster with his eyes, faster with his decision making. So I think overall, look, like the mind and the eyes were where they needed to be most of the time, but it's still not fast enough. It's similar to what you're talking about the pre snap, post snap diagnosis. Like he's going to have to get faster for sure. The accuracy is still a bit worrisome. You know, the the interception he threw, he had the route early, hesitated, throws it late, the window closes, it's high, it's incomplete. The third and four late in the mid-fourth quarter where he tries to throw the in-cut, zero blitz look. He knew where he needed to go with the ball. It's just too slow. And so that's the thing for Lance now, getting him faster with his mind. I think the the foundation is there. Now you got to build the house. Yeah. It was interesting to watch because I thought, like you, I thought there would be more misdirection. Yeah. I thought there would be more misdirection using him from center as yeah. opposed to using him from pistol. Yeah. I felt like they almost like took a stereotype of a quarterback 
and and said, well, he's mobile. He's got a big arm. Let's put him in pistol. You know, yeah. and it was like, what are you doing? Like, it was almost like they Colin Kaepernicked him a little bit. Um, it, yeah. to, to be honest, like, rather than saying, this is a guy that we can get throw on the move on design roles. He did it all day yeah. at North Dakota State. He played from yeah. center all day at North Dakota State. You had two running backs again. You know, yeah. I, I would have liked to seen them use both running backs on that level just for the sake of being able to work from center to work downhill and buy him some time with the dropback game and throw from a rhythm because I didn't see him. He used shotgun at North Dakota State, but I didn't see him as a pistol guy, if I remember yeah. correctly. And I'd I mean, rather, he did some of it, but... Yeah, yeah, give him some of the rhythm that he's used to working <coughs> with so that he can... Because I think that disrupts your how you see the field <laughs> and the speed of how you do things because if you don't get your feet under you... If your feet aren't, you know, your feet aren't used to executing some of these things, you know, I, I think that also impacts of your timing. And so yeah. I would have liked to have seen that a little bit more. He felt this, he played disjointed and I felt like the way they used him was fairly disjointed yeah. on those levels. So, yeah, but there was certainly good, some good throws, good decisions um, with part of that as well. So I was certainly... Um, you know, I think there's a good foundation for him. Yeah. And like you said, Kyle Shanahan will probably continue to figure out what they need from him if this for especially over the bye week. So yeah. so yeah, it's that wasn't an awful thing, but it was certainly had its rough spots. So the 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 maybe the more long term issue is watching him just attack opposing defenders like Steve McNair. You know, on the one hand, it's fun to watch a quarterback run over a safety or or run through a linebacker and have that kind of power. But now that we, you know, 20 years ago, I was quite enthused about that. You know, over the past 15 to 20 years, I've kind of evolved to the point of going, you know, I'm a little more ambivalent when I see somebody you know, drop the pads like that. Cause I'd like to see Lance play 15 years and not to be held together like duct tape, like Steve McNair at the end of his career. Our first show together was a Carson Wentz show. And we had a moment against Illinois state his junior year where he ran a defender over and you were, you and I were like, that's great. Don't ever do it again. Right. You know, and, and it's great to see the competitive toughness. Sure. But as we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, Trey Lance has a sprained knee and he's out one to two weeks. Like, you know, we don't know when it happens, but if it happens on plays like that, or if it even didn't happen on a play like that, but you're still going to do that, that's the kind of stuff that can result from it. And so I think, yeah, it's great. Don't 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 do it though. Like yeah. the, the 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 49ers drafted you to be their quarterback for the next 15 years, uh, for the next 15 weeks. And so while you might have gotten it, gotten away with it playing against Butler and Youngstown State, this is different. Like yeah. the, the guys on the other side are faster, are stronger, are bigger, are tougher. The hits will be bigger. Like the collisions will be more massive. It's too much of a risk. Yeah. You've got Lamar Jackson. Say whatever you want about Lamar Jackson. He does such a great job at protecting himself, you know, dipping out of bounds. He can hit a home run on almost any time he scrambles, but you will also see times where he'll give up. He'll, he'll dip out of bounds. He'll slide. He'll protect himself because he knows, look, those guys are big too, and they'd love nothing more than to knock you out of the game. So Lance yeah. will learn that out. Yeah, I mean, Russell Wilson has had nearly, what, a 10-year career without missing a start until he banged yep. his finger into a helmet? Yeah. You know? 
I mean, so hadn't missed a game, and he's and he's been hit a lot in the pocket. Well, maybe it's his concussion water. There, then maybe it is. Yeah, maybe it's the concussion water. <laughs> but uh, but you know, one step different, one yeah. step different, and it's and it's Daniel Jones uh, yeah. against Dallas. And that was Daniel, a scary scene. Yeah, exactly. You know, and he had no idea where he was and yep. what was going on. I mean, it's pretty clear just from looking at that. And we we want absolutely want to try and limit that. And with Lance, you know, I understand if it's the AFC divisional play or the yeah. NFC divisional playoffs, fourth down, you've got and to you got to get drive. it. Yeah, I get it. But your first start, week five, against, your week first five start against the Cardinals, whatever. Yeah. Okay, yeah. don't do that. All right, so the the news of the day, of the night last night and of the weekend was John Gruden getting fired. Um, the NFL has been investigating Daniel Snyder and a lot of the things going on in Washington, and they uncovered John Gruden and Bruce Allen's emails over what a seven year period, where they're talking about a lot of things, basically making you know racist, sexist, and uh, homophobic. Um, you know, references and remarks. Um, and, you know, Gruden got, you know, the, the first one came out where he, where he basically made a racial, um, you know, basically gave a stereotypical, a stereotypical epithet about Demora Smith. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, they didn't fire him then, which kind of plays into Dave Chappelle's point about, you, you know, you know, that there are, there are, you know, the overall point that when we look at the civil rights movement, there is a valid point that it's great that homosexuals and, uh, and women of, of white women have gotten, um, you know, have gained rights that they've gained. Um, but there are complaints that they have unintentionally become the gatekeepers for white America when it comes to black people. And there, mm-hmm. and I've certainly have, you know, there are certainly valid points to be made about some of that, even if there's a, de- a valid debate about some of it as well. Um, you know, so that's been made, but it's interesting thought to me from the standpoint of that, you know, they didn't fire him over that. But then once he offended more people who were different, whether it's because he offended more people or that it was people other than black people he he got fired immediately upon that release of that um so that's a point of discussion that i'll probably talk about a little bit more but i'm you know whether it's the story itself gruden gruden's behavior anything that's associated with what what we've just talked about love to hear your thoughts about it this is just the beginning I really think that's the big point here. I mean, there are many big points here. Obviously, Gruden and what he said and and the the response there too and the aftermath thereof um, and and the points you just raised about, okay, well, now you've offended the quote-unquote right people to offend now. You know, whereas what you said about Demory Smith, okay, well, we'll let that go. But now with this group of people you've offended, it's time to go. This isn't over. I mean, because like you said, this is an investigation into the workplace environment in Washington, you know, and there were other people on these emails, other current coaches that were on these emails. And the other thing that sort of hasn't been discussed is 
topless photos of the Washington cheerleaders were circulated amongst the people involved with these emails. And that was sort of the root and genesis of this investigation to begin with. This whole sort of environment that Dan Snyder on down sort of helped cultivate with the Washington football team. And so this story isn't old. Like Gruden may be the first domino to fall. I doubt that he's the last. And whether this ends up with Snyder being forced to sell the team, I know a lot of D.C. area fans in this area that I live in would love to see that. I don't know. But Andrew Brandt, you know, sports lawyer, like we all know him from Sports Illustrated, said there are probably 31 other organizations digging into their IT departments right now, figuring out what in the world the NFL might have, because this is just the beginning of this story. Oh, absolutely. Because there's no there's no doubt that just like the rest of America, that <laughs> these emails are common, you know, yeah. and, and especially even seven to 10 years ago would be even more common. And even working in environments 20 years ago, I would see things like this, you know, they were isolated, but they were isolated enough that, you know, when you're brought when you're brought in in a workplace to work with other people because somebody got fired for bad behavior and then you see the kind of depths of the behavior that was going on in the office place and you're going, this went on here? Like, you know, if this went on in my house, there would be right. like, there'd be havoc, you, you know? And and I'm by no means a choir boy, but that's the, you know, the, the way... A lot of this, you know, the, if people were to say this is shocking, you know, and it's typical of the NFL, I'd say it's typical of America. And anyone who's worked any length of time would know that, you know, there's crazy things that happen. But, you know, certainly what John Gruden did and Bruce Allen did and what a lot of people were doing is wrong. Um, and, you know, we can, you know, I could, I've had conversations and, shows where I've talked about race in America and things like that. And there'll be more of them. I'm sure I'll be doing more of them. But one of the things that does bother me a bit about this, and it's not necessarily Gruden getting fired, but it's the overall point of cancel culture. I'm not a big fan of cancel culture because it's just, it doesn't teach. It doesn't educate people. All it does is we have one side being a hall monitor. And then as a result of being that hall monitor, what you're doing is instilling fear and shame as opposed to instilling learning. Now, should there be some level of punishment? Should there be some level of education? Should we be able to, it, it just calls into question how we're approaching this. Are we educating and teaching or are we just punishing to the point that even when we punish, there are people who are doing the punishing who need to learn more about the issues and ask the people who are actually the victims in this or victimized in this what they think. You know, and what I find what I find interesting is that and while I would classify myself as more left-leaning, center to left-leaning, as a politically, you know, for whatever that's worth, I think the left side of our, of our country tends to engage in this shaming. And there's a, a portion of that who 
who doesn't ask the people they think they're protecting for their input and, or value their input or value, you, you know, what happens. And then when they're in a situation or in a room where, say, you know, black people, gay people, women want to say, give their point of view or value of on an issue, they're not listened to. And if they're not, and then when it's enforced that they should be listened to, these same people who are as the protectors freak out and engage in as bad as behavior as the very people they're shaming, um, just in different ways. So when I look at John Gruden, yeah, he needs to be punished. Do play, you know, for for the behavior, and it was certainly egregious behavior, um, because when you make those statements. Um, you are you're, you're perpetuating a thought process that then allows people with even say John Gruden in his actions were maybe he had a lot of good actions, you know, in terms of how he related to people in the black community or to women or to homosexuals. But making those statements, you're still you're still even if you think they were in private, even if you think there was someone who understands you're putting you're still creating an environment where people with less wisdom are more prone to actions and behaviors that are a detriment to the very people that you would claim you support or have been supportive of yeah. and i think that's the thing that john gruden probably didn't understand <clears throat> if you were to even believe that he's like i don't have a racist bone in my body right well you know honestly Everyone has a racist bone in their body because there's no such thing as colorblind. It's just levels of bias and how you act on it. And it's okay. I have, I am married to a black woman. I have a biracial child. I have been, I have parented, you know, I've parented three biracial children, you know, and I had to overcome bias. You know, I still have biases that I see and think about that come to mind immediately that I have to check myself on because I was raised in a way where I had some biases and had to overcome it. And it was, and some of it wasn't raised. I wasn't raised in the KKK or raised in some sort of, you know, hate group. I was raised in normal American society in, in a lot of ways where just what I observed outside of my family home instilled biases yep. in me. And I think that's the thing that I would I would love for people to think about is that we all have biases. We're not colorblind. Colorblind is a bullshit term. And if you and if you find that offensive, you really need to do a little bit more digging because we all do have biases with everything that we analyze and look at. And it doesn't make us hateful. It just makes us ignorant because of the environment that we came from and what we were raised on. And sometimes you have to check that. And when you look at people who don't really look introspectively into this issue, like a John Gruden, he's someone who thought he could get away with saying things privately, like a right. lot of America, and not think that that was going to impact how he deals with people or thinks he can deal with people one way and still be okay, but have some of these thoughts and yeah. not check them. 
Yeah, you know? and, and that's the thing with the Gruden situation that, that's troubling, which is why I think, well, generally, I think you're exactly right. Like, we need to do more teaching and learning and listening as a society. The Gruden situation, which is troubled, is the fact that there were underlings on these emails. Yes. There were underlings and, and, and subordinates on these emails who probably the message they got was, oh, this is okay. Exactly. Oh, this is acceptable. And I think that's the problem. That's that's the situation here. Like this wasn't two guys at a bar alone on ya- on their personal Yahoo account. Or their per- this was like a work email where you didn't where you had Gruden and Allen and other people under both of them listening in, reading in. And what were the messages that they were taking from those emails? That's the wrong kind of teaching. Yes. But that's the kind of teaching that John Gruden was doing in this situation that you know, we'd hope people wouldn't be doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and to me, and that's why I like, I probably didn't state it perfectly well, is that while I think that it made perfect sense for them to get rid of Gruden, I think it, and that's for the exact, that reason, the, it still gets me the overall idea. I still think about cancel culture because I think at what point, at one point, do we are we educating going to educate people? Because there's going to be more of this. Because this is yeah. this happens with coaches, GMs, owners, and players. You know, it, it, it's it's been there. John Gruden may have been perpetuating it, but it's been perpetuated and been going on for years. Bruce Allen, the same man whose father basically demanded um, George Preston Marshall to draft black players. Now, yeah. there was probably more of a Machiavellian reason for that or a pragmatic reason for that, um, as opposed to whether he felt one way or the other. Um, but it was a step in the right direction. But it's, you know, still to that yeah. degree, it just tells you a good bit. So moving on from one coach who, you know, one coach's unfortunate demise and hopefully he figures some things out and 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 can move on with his life in a way that will be helpful to other people in addition to himself. We've got Dan Campbell. Is he a coach of the year candidate? I could make, you could make the case he is. I mean, you, I think Doug Farrar and I were doing our show, I think two weeks ago, and he said that, you know, every other opponent will get done playing the Lions and their head coach will say something along the lines of that team gave us every single bit we had today. Like they gave us everything they had, and we are lucky to get out of here with a win. And you've seen that in two straight weeks now. You've seen it with the Ravens. You've seen it, you know, this past week with the Vikings. This is a roster that a lot of people thought was going to go three and fourteen. That a lot of people looked at Dan Campbell when he was hired at his introductory press conference and said, "Look, this guy, no, like it's not going to work. It's it's comical. He's like, you know, a macho testosterone fueled Ted Lasso. Like it's it's a bad situation. He's got that team playing hard." He's got that team believing in him. And say what you want about his post-game comments and get him choked up. As a former athlete, I see my coach at the podium like that with his heart on his sleeve, brokenhearted that we didn't win. And he's upset because he feels bad for us. I'll play for that guy. I'll play for that guy for free. Like, that's how I feel about it. And, you know, you can't tell me that there are people in that locker room that feel the same way about him. And that's coaching. That's leadership. And so forget the wins and losses, the X's and O's. Like he's doing a heck of a job up in Detroit, man. And it's fun to see. I love Dan Campbell's press conference to begin with. I loved the way that he characterized what he was going to do because you could see 
that he believed it, that he felt it. I didn't think it was BS. I understand the 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 point of view of people who are skeptics that it was kind of like, yeah, it was a testosterone Ted Lasso thing. But I, I'm sorry, but you need you you need a certain point of view to play football. You, you and this is a guy who played the game. He understands that, and he's got you know. This is a team that you know. There's a. I'll just say there's someone we both know, Mark, who who got a chance to asked to do some consulting to watch some wide receiver tape for that team. And he was like, I didn't like any of the players on there other than Khalif Raymond because he had some speed. He was the only one yeah. who had some speed who I felt like threatened by, you know, in terms of uh, uh, thinking from a defensive standpoint, feeling threatened by them. Um, you know, this is a, you know, they have a good offense. They have the makings of a good offensive line. Yep. You know, they have a veteran quarterback, However, you want to describe Jared Goff, he was he's a veteran, you know. Good running backs. That's about it. Yeah, you know, an up and coming middle linebacker, maybe you know, some safety play that you know. But you know, overall, this team has a lot of holes, like you said, and for them to be this close in every game and to author comebacks and make it close. Yeah, you know, yeah, I. I don't know. You have to be pretty cynical and there, and there's reason if you're cover the NFL to be cynical. So I get it, but I would, I'd love to check people and say, you have to be, you've gone past the line of appropriate cynicism. If you don't like Dan Campbell at this point, yeah. now maybe that changes down the line, but right now, yeah. If, if we're going to look at what a real, what a coach is about it, to, people will say it's about wins, but no, it's about getting people to compete. Yeah. And if you have the talent and you're competing, you win. The wins will come. Yes. You know, I mean, the 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 only difference between the Lions and the Ravens is that the Ravens have a little more talent. The Ravens have Lamar Jackson. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They have a little more talent because both those teams are the two toughest, you know, scrappiest teams in the NFL right now. Yeah. And you can see the difference. That's the difference between talent in my mind. Yeah. All right. So let's play a little player to scenario, match a player to these following scenarios. You, now you can match the player more than once. The players you're going to be looking at are CD lamb, um, Jarvis Landry. I'm actually meant to put someone else there, but that's okay. I like Jarvis Landry, Deandre Hopkins, Robert Woods and Hunter Renfro. All right, you get to choose the player for this scenario. Third and five, they're facing press coverage. It's a slant, and the game is on the line. This was the easiest one. It's DeAndre Hopkins. And I, I think back to Deshaun Watson's first start in the NFL. It was a Thursday night against Cincinnati. And Watson was looking at number 10 and number 10 only. And everybody in the stadium knew it. Everybody watching knew it. Like That's where it was going. He was getting press coverage, double coverage, all night long, and he's still making catches at the catch point, contested catch situations, slant routes, stop routes, hitch routes, everything because of his hand strength. And so it's DeAndre Hopkins. Yeah, I'm right there with you. There's actually a DeAndre Hopkins short slant against Josh Norman on Sunday that I profiled the chess match with that that I'm probably going to put on the site um, for people who aren't on Twitter because it's just a fantastic understanding of the position of the cornerback 
his footwork, how to be efficient with his feet to get the defender to shoot his hands, and then be violent with his hands because of the position that he gains. All within basically two steps where he travels basically six inches from yeah. the line of scrimmage to set up that route so that he doesn't get rerouted and he can make that catch in tight coverage. It, it That is masterful receiver play on a play that looks incredibly simple. Yep. All right. Second and two, play action. Go route early in the game and you're at midfield. CeeDee Lamb for me. And mostly because I've seen Dallas do that a couple of times already. Um, but Lamb, you know, his ability to get up to speed quickly, his ability to do some nuanced stuff at the top of his release before, you know, really accelerate into the vertical part of the route, especially off play action. Well, I love it. I love the way he's looked this year. So CD Lamb. All right. So now let me add in a little wrinkle to that. Okay. CD Lamb versus Jamar Chase. Oh man, it's it's Chase. Okay. I'll say Chase here. Um, I forget who said it. I think it was Derek Clawson who said the best way to describe C- Jamar Chase right now is he doesn't look open until he's open. Like yeah. he's so good at the right before the catch point. The vertical catch he had against Jacksonville two weeks ago along the left side. So he's got the left arm ready, but the right arm just to extend a little yeah. bit of separation at the bottom of it. It's not going to get flagged. It's a veteran play. I love that for yeah. Chase. Oh, so yeah. If you flip Chase in there, I'll say Chase. Yeah, that's who I meant to put in there instead of Jarvis okay. Landry. But okay. for some reason, I said Jarvis Landry. Um, every time, that's my little weird, like, name tick that I have right. like, recently. Like, for me, it used to be. Um, Travis Best and Javid Best. Um, yeah. Now I have like Jarvis Landry and Jamar Chase. I don't know why it's that way, but that's how I'm feeling. But Jamar Chase, yeah, for me, would absolutely would be that match if he were in there. And for that reason, the framing, the separation, to keep that bubble of position. Because it's not so much a push-off. I would say it's more of a I'm re- I'm re- it's a, I'm, Yeah, it's I'm, a framing I'm, thing. Yeah, it's a framing thing. I'm like, I'm basically reaffirming the separation that I already have and not letting you get any closer right. by keep putting my arm out there yeah. so that you can't get into my body. Yeah. Um, and when it's done well... Um, it's almost like you watch baseball, you see outfielder going back towards the wall. They put the arm out to yeah. feel where that wall is. Yeah, It's the same kind of thing. The guy who did it unbelievably well was Jordy Nelson. Jordy yeah. Nelson was great at framing separation. Okay, so... Third and five. Uh, no, fourth down. Fourth down dig route versus the teeth of zone, and the game is on the line. This is tough. I want to say Hopkins here, but I want to say Robert Woods. Yeah. I'm going to say Robert Woods for this one. <laughs> I like his feel for zone coverage situations, yeah. and yeah. I'm with you. That's my nope. that's my thought, too, because he's he's such a good timing route runner, and he's a good yeah. zone guy, um, very reliable in the middle of the field, and he can get outside. Like, you could put Robert Woods probably on – even on the go route and like you get competent work, he wouldn't be your best choice, but he'd be still be an okay choice there. Yeah. So Robert Woods would fit almost any of these, even if he wasn't the best choice. Yeah. All right. How about a smoke screen backed up deep in your own territory? This is where I'll put Jarvis Landry. I okay. mean, I, I think this kind of play, I mean, I can make a case for any of these guys, particularly lamb maybe, but I, I, I think Jarvis is, this is, this is his game. You know, the short area stuff, 
yardage after the catch. Like, that's what he's good at. This is the moment for him. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I love C.D. Lamb's open field play, and I love his toughness. He will run you over and take a hit, but Jarvis Landry has a whole other physicality to him. He's he's the closest thing we've seen to Heinz Ward in quite a while. All right, red zone scramble drill versus zone. This one was tough. Um, I'm going to go with Robert Woods. We, we talked about the feel for zone and scramble drill versus zone coverage. That's, that's all about feel, knowing where soft spots are, finding that open grass and settling down, making yourself available. That's Robert Woods. I'm going Hunter Renfro. Yeah, I so, can see that. Yeah, I, I mean, can see that. I like the Woods one too, and I'm totally with that, but I like Hunter Renfro as well. I think he, I think he does some good work against zone, and he shows some nuance there. He's a very smart player. Um, and he's proven fairly reliable. Maybe not as good of a track record as Woods, but he's a, he's an up-and-comer. How about double move versus man up the seam? Hunter Renfro, yeah. right there. Yeah. I mean, he's the dude that's running that four-break route now. They're like, <laughs> out, in, up, out, back. Like, yeah. that Ted Wynn couldn't write about. That's my favorite part of that entire route. Ted Wynn was not allowed to write about it during the summer, during training camp, because they said, no, 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 you got to keep this under wraps. So Hunter Renfro on that double move. That's hilarious. And I love the story that that actually the two people, they were Hunter Renfro and Cooper Cup were doing it. Yeah. And I think the story is that Cooper Cup was first doing it and Ren Renfro copied it. Yeah. And then that was a race to see who was going to get it, who was going to get it going in a game first. first. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a fantastic, that's a fantastic bit. And that's great to know about the 10 win story right there. So how about the double move versus zone up the scene? I'll say Hunter again. Yeah. I mean, Woods is probably good here. I mean, Lamb, all these guys are good here. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to say Hunter again. I mean, yeah. I think he's got that ch- change of direction skill to his is, is elite, I'd say. So, Hunter. I would agree. Yeah. How about third and 17 with an outer comeback versus tight man and the safeties in the action? DeAndre to... Hopkins. Yep. DeAndre Hopkins. Like yep. he's, he's winning that ball for you. I would trust him with my life on it. I'm just telling you right now um, – this year, like if we're just playing right now and like needed a player right now, the first wide receiver on my board is DeAndre Hopkins, hands down. I know yeah. Devontae Adams is a great player and there's a huge argument you could make for that. But I want the guy who is the tech, not only the technician like Adams, but will beat the crap out of you and still yeah. somehow get to the ball and run. Yeah. I, I'm. I want the physicality. His that back shoulder touchdown he had this past week. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He's just. I I love DeAndre Hopkins and and he doesn't get and that's the thing. Like I could picture Devonte Adams on the on a rare occasion getting frustrated by a physical player, like someone physically frustrating him. I don't think anyone's going to frustrate DeAndre Hopkins. Right. If anything, DeAndre Hopkins will frustrate that physical player. And yeah. to me, if that's that, to me, I don't want, I want all my bases covered that way. So, all right. So, we'll, our, TV series, movies, books, podcasts, video game, any music, anything that you've enjoyed recently, non-football. Okay. <laughs> I got a couple of things here. I'm going through a colonial phase. The Look family, we went to Mount Vernon like two weekends ago. Uh, my, my son, we had an early baseball game, 9 a.m. start. So we're out coaching. I'm out coaching at the crack of dawn. Um, so we had the entire afternoon. So it was a beautiful day. We went out to Mount Vernon. And 
the last time I had been out to Mount Vernon, I had this fantastic peanut soup, right? Virginia peanuts. And all I wanted was a cookbook to, to replicate that. None of the cookbooks there at the store were really good. So I remembered we had one from the trellis, which is now a recently closed restaurant from Williamsburg where my wife and I went to law school. Um, so last Friday I made shoe peg corn and peanut soup, uh, an apple, um, romaine and cheddar salad, and then a pear and mushroom apple cider brandy infused chicken dish. And yeah, that was, that was, and I was, I was listening to like, I found an album on Amazon music of colonial string music. So I was listening to that. My my wife, you really immersed yourself into this. I go all in, man. I go like, were you wearing a Parsons hat? No, no? but I came close. I came close, but like the kids had a half day. My wife was working from home and they were just like, what in the world is daddy doing? He's gone insane. But you and I have talked about, how we try to keep Fridays yeah. away from this and won't lie, gone through like some, some tough mental stuff the past two weeks with all of this stuff that I'm doing, all this stuff that we go through. Like we talked about last week, October is that time where like the wall, it's my first wall. And so I needed that Friday. So I did it and, and it fixed me. I was, I was good to go for Saturday and everything. So I'm going through a colonial phase. So there's that. I've also, been replaying stardew valley which i love and red dead redemption 2 which i hadn't picked up in probably a year and a half and last night i had on one screen the ravens game on a smaller screen the red sox game but i was playing red dead and i was literally i forgot how visually impressive that game was matt i was just riding a horse i wasn't doing anything i wasn't chasing anyone I wasn't like collecting bounties or anything. I was just literally riding a horse in a video game for like two hours while I had those, my eyes on both of those games. And it was one of those things where like, I was able to like, just put the world aside for a little bit and, and enjoyed it. And, you know, I've been talking with a lot of people over the past, say like month and a half um, people that we both know people that listeners to the show probably know about some of the struggles, like, like so, it's, been two or a year and a half that have been very hard. And I, th- I think for many of us, we've gone through ebbs and flows with it. And I feel like a lot of people in and around our industry are in down cycles right now, talking to a lot of people with that. And I keep telling people, um, cause I talk to a lot of people about stuff like this behind the scenes, tw- Twitter, text, DMS, I have people that I check in like with all the time. I keep telling people, you have to find those manufactured moments if you need them and take advantage of them. And I've done it myself and I've just outlined and I outlined for all these people, the things I did on Friday with making this meal, the things I did last night would just play a video game. Like you need to find those manufactured moments and then take advantage of them. Cause you need to have little victories. You need to have things to look forward to because this, this industry can be a grind. This past year and a half has been a grind. A lot of people are struggling. You need to find that joy and manufacture it if you have to. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with taking some time off. You got yeah. you to be able to do that and find things, and, cultivate and things. People love to glamorize and glorify the grind, okay? There's no point to the grind if you aren't around to enjoy it afterwards. That's if right. the grind is going to kill you and put you into an early grave, like my old job, then there's no point to it. You need no. to do things differently. And, and so that's yeah. my last little 
message there. No, I'm totally with you there. And I took Friday off and watched uh, watched Squid Game. Uh, I, you're watching that? Oh, I finished it. I haven't it. watched it. I we, keep hearing good things, though. We finished it. It It is, I'm not going to, you know, give any anything away. But, you know, for those of you who aren't aware of it, it's a it's a show set in Korea, um, basically where people are who are desperate for money um, find themselves recruited to play children's games. Um, and so with consequence with adult consequences, I would almost say adult inhumane consequences. We'll just leave it at that. Um, and it is a very huge statement. One of the things about it, and somebody mentioned this on, um, there's an episode that I'll just say that deals with the game of marbles. And it's it's series, it's season six. And if you've, if you've read anything about genocide or slavery and the inhumanity that men are capable of, men and women are capable of, you know, inflicting upon other men and women, um, and knowing that the anecdote to that is being as humane as possible, that episode personalizes those moments. And actually, I wouldn't be surprised if they took some of those interactions from stories that they heard from survivors of slavery and and genocide. Because I've I've certainly heard some of those stories that echo some of the things in, in that. And it's one of the see, episode six of Squid Games was one of the best episodes of anything I've seen in recent memory. Um, from it was a slow burn, emotion, tear your heart out, emotional type of thing, but it was really, really well done. Um, it's got humor in it. You do find yourself laughing at some of the things that you wouldn't expect. It's got some of that, you know. If you if you think about like bad, overdubbed, subtitled, you know, foreign films from a, from that standpoint. There's a little bit of that to it because, again, you know, this was Korean made. The acting, I think, is still very good, um, yep. and the storyline is fantastic. It's a, it's a good, it's a good thing. So I would definitely recommend that. And I'll echo your point. You know, I mean, you need to be able to take some time, and and for that, for me, for me, August and September is my most awful time. And then October comes and I feel pretty darn good. It's yeah. like being in the old movie, The Abyss, where like they have the, the liquid um, stuff that you inhale to breathe underwater. And at first you feel like you're drowning. That's how I usually feel yeah. um, the, during that period of time. So usually for me, it's like it's around. I'm usually burnt out around the draft um, and around fantasy drafts. Once, yeah. Usually at that point, I'm like, you know that that's from that's where and then like for the rest of the time it's good but that yeah that grind you have to glorifying the grind is nothing more than trying to get attention for clicks i've done it other people yeah we've do all it. done it we've all done it because you uh, every once in a while you want to pat on the back for what you're right. doing you know you just want someone to say keep up the good work keep doing what you're doing right you know so there's that and that's understandable but at the same time too you want you want to keep it at that and understand that it's that at some point you, you got to have more of a life. You got to enjoy what you're doing um, and, and have other things that bring to it. I mean, I, I took off, I stopped doing the Sunday show at football guys um, mainly because I needed, I needed some time before 
analyzing 14 hours of football right. and then writing an, a, a long article on that analysis the next day, I needed some time to do something other than talk about, write about yeah. football. Yeah. You know, Otherwise, what I would do would be no good. Yeah. So on that, you know, on that note, let's finish, wrap this up. We've got just choose one or the other. You can, however much you want to say or little is fine. Joe Montana or Steve Young? Joe Montana. I look, it, it's, it's a personal thing. Um, when I was playing Pop Warner, I wore 16. That was Montana's number. Then when I played high school, I wore three. That was his number in Notre Dame. When I went to Wesleyan and, th and three was taken, I wore nine because it was three times three. I, I grew up Montana. Before I was a Patriots fan, I was a Joe Montana fan. And I was crestfallen um, when Jim Burt obliterated it. I was crestfallen when they lost to the Giants. Um, you know, I there's things that I've had to unlearn about the current way you play quarterback that were instilled in me by watching and growing up on Montana. I mean, yeah. uh, Justice Mosqueda um, had a great tweet like, a couple years ago that, you know, we were watching the end of the era of quarterbacks that grew up idolizing – Joe Montana. Now we're seeing the guys that watched Favre. The next group is the guys that watched Mahomes. Like that's going to be the evolution of the game. I'm part of the generation that grew up like Tom Brady, like watching Montana, and so it's Montana for me. Yeah, it's Montana for me too. I loved Steve Young. Steve Young was a yep. great player. He was tough. He was physical. Man, was he fast, and he became an efficient superstar. You know, he he was a great quarterback, no doubt about it. But you know, Joe Montana, I think, is the best quarterback that's ever played. I still think that. And, you know, I I joke that, you know, I've joked that Brett Favre, and I've written that Brett Favre would be my quarterback to defend the planet. But yeah. I think I'd probably have, I'd either have Brett Favre in there in the first half or the first three quarters, and then I'd bring Joe Montana in the fourth quarter yeah. of a game. Um, Joe Montana was the most clutch quarterback he was unbelievably efficient. And when you look at him, Jared Goff makes Jared Goff looks like Matt Stafford compared to Joe Montana in terms of physical. Yeah. You know, and Joe Montana played in, I would argue, the toughest era of football because I know that the, the 50, 40s, 50s, and 60s was tough because of the lack of certain rules to protect players, but they also didn't have their equipment weaponized. Right. Like that it was weaponized in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And that's when we really started to see some of the most violent hits. And and that was the apex of athletic ability combined with the weaponization of equipment. Yeah. And the fact that Joe Montana basically looks like an, an orphan, um, you know, a little orphan yeah. boy basically out there and was still played at the level he did. And he took some... Like you said, the Jim Burt shot, the, yeah. some of the shots he took, you know, I, I yeah, I, I don't have much I could say about Joe Montana other than that. I don't know if there's another quarterback I'd choose over him. Barry Sanders or Gale Sayers? Man, this one's tough, but I'm going to say Barry Sanders. I mean, the movement skills, the change of direction stuff, the ability to take a handoff, get eight yards deep in the backfield, reverse field twice and turn it into a home run play. Like Sayers was a bit before my time. So that's a bit of play here, but for me, it's Barry. 
I'm angry just having to make the decision, to be honest yeah. with you. That's, yeah. I, I don't feel good about the decision either way. I'll say that Gale Sayers' punt return on Kezar Stadium's muddy turf and the cut that he makes on that turf, I honestly believe that if, if you were a conspiracy theorist, you'd have a better shot at convincing me that that was trick, film trickery than the moon landing. Okay. So I'm going, but I'm still going with Barry Sanders. Yeah. I, I hate myself for doing it though. Um, Mike Haynes or Darrell Revis. This one's tough, but first round pick by the new England Patriots, Mike Haynes. I'm with um, you. He's just a tremendous, tremendous defensive back. Um, you know, you see the area which he played. Yeah, it was different. I still think if he had to play today, he'd be just as successful with his movement skills, his change of direction skills, his eyes tied to his feet. Like, yeah, huge fan of him. Yeah, he was so smooth, so yeah. smooth. And he could be physical, but he was smooth. I thought Revis was a phenomenon and a absolutely great player. But just on the, the let's just say on the basis of career length. Yeah. I'll take Mike Haynes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, on that note, another great show. Mark Schofield, you can find him at Mark Schofield. Goes throws on Twitter. You can find his YouTube account, Mark Schofield. Um, and, of course, find him at TD Wire. He's blogging for the boys. Yeah. watch every week. You know, the only guy. Let me just give you, put it to you this way. Mark Schofield is writing for and sought after by both Eagles fans, Giants fans, and Cowboys fans. Yeah. If if you don't get that, then I don't know what to tell you. Okay, so. I I got some kind of hold on the NFC East crowd. What can uh, I say? You've calmed the hell out of them. That's all I I got to say. Do they know that you're doing this? They probably I, don't. They do. They don't, but they do now. Okay. We'll, we'll see how I it mean, ends. Okay. If not, well, <laughs> shoot, I guess I'm going to have to, I, I don't know what I'm going to have to do. We're good, Matt. We're yeah. all good. They all right. know. Y'all take care. Again, I forgot to plug the RSP. Buy it. Buy, buy it. it. Yeah. Buy we'll it. talk more about it. it down the line. Buy you guys it. take care.